Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. Today we have a slightly different episode. It's kind of halfway between a regular episode and a mini episode. I got a recommendation from a listener of the show, John Henry Parr, and uh, he gave me this tip about a book called Napoleon, How He Did It. And the book is written by one of Napoleon's private secretaries. The guy's name is Baron Agathon Jean-Francois Fain. And what it is, is it's an extremely detailed account of exactly how Napoleon worked, how he organized his desk, how many secretaries he hired, when he woke up, what his morning routine was, when he went to bed, when he took dinner, how many meetings he had and when he had them, everything. Just breaks down his work schedule and his work methods in minute detail. And it's like a perfect book for how to take over the world, right? So I read it and I was blown away. It was even better than I was expecting. It really inspired me. And in fact, I've changed a few things about how I work and and how I do this show based on what I read in that book. Uh, It's already changed my life. So I think this episode is going to be really inspirational and hopefully has a few concrete takeaways for all of you as well. Um, So let's get into it. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Cold Plunge. Look, if you listen to the Alexander the Great episodes, you know how important cold baths were to the Greeks and to Alexander the Great specifically. They were also important to the Romans, who always had a cold pool in their famous bathhouses. And great people of all times have recognized the mental and health benefits of taking a dip in cold water. In fact, I found a quote all the way back from 1657, an English doctor and scholar by the name of Pierre Morel wrote, Neither can I easily express in words how much good cold baths do bring unto them that use them. And you know what? I agree with uh, with Mr. Morell. I have always believed in cold baths. They boost your mood and your immune system. They're really good for your skin and hair, and they keep you mentally sharp. I used to haul big bags of ice from the grocery store so that I could take five-minute ice baths, but now I don't have to do that anymore because I am very pleased to partner with Cold Plunge. The Cold Plunge has cooling technology that gives you ice bath levels of cold without all the hassle. And with their filtration and sanitation technology, it makes the experience far superior to an ice bath or chest freezer. You can easily fill up your cold plunge with just a hose, set your temperature, and you're off. It couldn't be easier. So check them out at thecoldplunge.com and use code BENWILSON to get $150 off. Once again, that is thecoldplunge.com and use my name as the code B-E-N-W-I-L-S-O-N for $150 off. So I want to start by telling you how Napoleon organized his letters, his correspondence, because I think it is representative of the whole system around him and how he worked. He had his letters organized into three piles, current, pending, and answered. Now, this might seem pretty normal, but the part that I find really interesting is that answered wasn't actually a pile. He would pick up a paper from the current pile, read it, dictate a response to his secretary, and then let the letter slip from his hands onto the floor. Later, when Napoleon left the room, someone would come in and pick up the papers on the floor and organize them into the answered pile. At the same time, while Napoleon was out of the room, his secretary, who had transcribed the response, would now copy the response for their own records. So the idea that you should get is this insane optimization machine that revolved around helping Napoleon spend as much time as humanly possible 
on doing his best work, on thinking and deciding was really what he wanted to spend his time doing. Everything else was taken care of to free him up to think and to decide. He didn't dress himself. He didn't drive himself. He didn't stoke his own fire. He did not write ever unless it was a love note to his wife. He always dictated and one of his secretaries wrote for him. He did not put away his own papers. He didn't put away anything. People followed after him and just picked stuff up for him. He didn't even really need to turn his decisions into explicit orders. His chief of staff, Berthier, generally did that for him. Everything was set up so that Napoleon could think and decide and so that decisions could be leveraged to the greatest extent possible. So let's take a look at how that actually worked uh, in the details. Let's start from the very beginning and go through Napoleon's schedule and habits. He went to bed by 10 o'clock every night. He generally woke up at 2 a.m. and he would work privately for a few hours. Apparently this was when he would do a lot of his deep thinking about very serious topics. He would then fall asleep again around 5 a.m. and sleep until 7 a.m. So at 7 a.m. he would get ready and have one of his servants dress him. As far as I can tell, he didn't eat a breakfast. Uh, he went straight to his desk. At 8 a.m. he would start working. His first order of business was to review any communications from the previous day that still needed responding to. So I know I read a lot of business advice out there that says, you know, you need to dictate the first priorities. Don't get into your inbox. Don't get into your email first thing in the day. Um, and that might be good advice, but Napoleon very much was in his inbox very first thing in the day, first thing in the morning. So that would go generally for an hour from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. At 9 a.m., he had something called the levy. This was sort of an open meeting with the most important ministers from his government. It was essentially unstructured. Uh, it could be as short as five minutes or it could go several hours long, but it was generally on the shorter side. And so he would invite in all of these ministers and it was his opportunity to dictate the priorities for the day, what was gonna happen and how they were going to do it. So the meeting with actually all the ministers was generally not very long, but sometimes if he needed to focus a little bit more, dive a little deeper with one or two of his ministers, he would hold them after and those were the meetings that could go uh, longer, sometimes for multiple hours. I think this is a smart idea that I don't see incorporated very often, um, but I like the idea of a daily meeting where the head of an organization can set the agenda from the very top. After this levy, he would go back to his office and continue to work through correspondence and then take in his daily reports. One of my biggest takeaways from reading this is that Napoleon was so hungry for information he wanted all the data. He wanted all the details. He wanted to know exactly what was going on in the most minute way possible. He would read official reports on troop movements, official reports from his ministers, a report from the chief of police of Paris so that he would know what was going on in the city. He would read newspapers from his empire, and then he would have translators come in and read him foreign newspapers so that he knew what was going on in the rest of Europe. He would even read, uh, and I found this really interesting, he would read the previous day's log of palace visitors. So there was, you know, like uh, think of a corporate headquarters, you go in and there's someone at the front desk who says you have to sign in and they say, who are you here to see? Well, they had that at Napoleon's palace and Napoleon would always read it the next day so that he knew everyone who was visiting the palace and who they were meeting with. And that was just a good way for him to kind of stay on top of uh, what his ministers were doing and how they were spending their time. And so he was always trying to glean information off little details like this. He also had um, one other thing that I found that was a really interesting source of information. He had normal people 
many of them were just kind of friends of his or, or people that he knew. Um, but, but they were not high up in government. They were relatively normal people who would write him at regular intervals to tell him what they thought about current events, how they thought the government was performing, and then what their friends and, and their neighbors and their associates were saying about the government and about news. And so for him, it was like this ongoing focus group that Napoleon could just kind of keep track of public opinion because he was regularly getting these letters from, from pretty normal people about what they and their neighbors were thinking. Generally speaking, this receiving reports and responding to letters would go on until lunchtime. His luncheon, he would always eat with his wife and with his son, but he would use the time to conduct business that his wife would be interested in or was involved in. And this is his second wife, uh, the Empress Marie Louise. So Napoleon might meet with a museum director or the head of a school that needed reforming or um, the family portrait artist, uh, the family sculptor, uh, his private li librarian. And with all these things, he was meeting and talking about things that Marie Louise could follow up on and carry forward. I found particularly interesting his meetings with his librarian because Napoleon basically used his librarian like a personal Wikipedia. He expected him to know a little bit about everything and to be able to look up the rest and point Napoleon towards the information he needed. So if he knew he was about to embark on a campaign through Bavaria, he would ask his librarian about the customs, religion, history, geography, and people of Bavaria and expect him to know a little bit about it and then be able to direct him towards the proper books that he could read to, to fill in any gaps that his librarian might have in his knowledge. Speaking of his librarian, in Napoleon's personal library that he kept in his office, he had only history books. Uh, Baron Fane points this out. So score one for the history nerds among us. Um, Napoleon also thought that that was the most important and uh, an interesting field of study. After his luncheon, uh, the afternoon was more dedicated to what we would probably call deep work in contrast to the morning. Um, so what would deep work entail? From the book, Baron Fane tells us, quote, for example, dictating the outline of a diplomatic note, critically examining a plan for fortifications, drawing up a training regimen for a new army corps, sowing the basis for a discussion of civil rights, inspecting a statement of receipts or expenses from the treasury, calculating the progression of naval construction, or relaxing a moment over the artillery reports. Okay, he says that at the end, relaxing over artillery reports because Napoleon's background, of course, was as an artillery officer. So he found that relaxing and pleasurable to read artillery reports because he knew it so well and could manage it so easily. But this is a very wide variety of things. So how was he able to analyze and make decisions about such a variety of topics? Well, Napoleon said that the craft of emperors had its tools like all others. In other words, he thought that being an emperor was kind of like being a carpenter. You have your hammer, you have your saw, you have uh, your nails, you have your tools that you use to, to be efficient. And for him, those tools were these record books. They were essentially data repositories for everything happening in the empire and outside of it often. So for example, Fane writes that, quote, the record books of the war ministry were most numerous. Each regiment appeared in the books in numerical order. Each had its own page. And in the columns subdividing it were found the names of the colonel major and other superior officers. It listed the occasions when the regiment had distinguished itself, in which army and in which active division each war battalion had been deployed, the location assigned to the depot for the army, the strength of the regiment overall, men present at arms, a list of the sick and injured in the hospitals, and lastly, the listing of the countries where the group came from. Okay, so obviously this is very detailed. 
so that Napoleon can not only get the high-level statistical view of what's going on, but he can dig down into it and find out, okay, you know, how many guys are sick from this regiment, and why are they sick? What's going on here? And uh, where are they deployed from, and where are they going? Uh, just every piece of information he could possibly want, he was able to dig into in these record books. And all the record books were designed to be very much like one another. So he had Navy records, finance records, market prices, records about foreign armies, and more. That's just kind of scratching the surface. And so they generally had the same layout so that he didn't have to relearn each record book. He could just open it up and analyze it in the same way as all the other books. These record books were a remarkable boon to his ability to govern efficiently. He could flip through the financial book and in an hour have a working knowledge of the budget and finances of the empire. He could peruse his naval records and then have a conversation with his Navy minister on their maritime strategy and fleet placements and what they needed to do. These remarkably organized and detailed books allowed Napoleon to see into the details of his empire extremely quickly. And it says something about the importance of having good data and having it organized well so that you can access it quickly and often. Um, so there you go. Speaking of detail, Napoleon had a remarkable eye for details and he always knew the details behind what he was doing, including the most minute details. One passage that I found interesting was Napoleon was having a conversation with Baron Fane, uh, this private secretary who wrote this book, and asked him what he spent on clothes every year. And Baron Fane was like most of us. He, he didn't know exactly what he spent on clothes every year. And Napoleon kind of jokingly chided him for this and tell, told him that he needed to, to know what he spent on clothes every year. And Napoleon did know what he himself spent on clothes every year. And it was pretty easy for him because he basically always wore the same thing. A military uniform and he bought two new ones every year so that's how he knew exactly what he spent he knew how much those uniforms cost he got two new ones every single year and i actually didn't know this about him previously but he had the steve jobs caesar thing going on uh, from the book quote it is known that napoleon dressed with the greatest simplicity always in a jacket and white breeches in paris he habitually wore the uniform of the grenadiers his hat was always the same, small, three-cornered, remarkably simple in a crushed form, resembling that of a slouched hat. It was the only part of his clothing distinguished by a light touch of originality. Okay, so there you go. Uh, just like the other guys, he dressed remarkably simply with one light touch of originality. So if you thought when I did those uh, Taft ad reads that I was just making that up for the sake of the ad reads, it is actually true that all of these guys have the same way of dressing, which is very plain, very simple, um, something that won't stand out to everyone, except for one light touch of originality. And for Napoleon, apparently that was his hat. Uh, okay, that was a light digression. Let's return to a schedule. After an afternoon of deep work, he would go to dinner. Dinners at the palace were state affairs. So um, there were multiple tables with lots of courtiers and important people. At his own table, Napoleon would eat just just with the empress. So he and the empress were kind of at the head at this one little table. And then there were other tables in this banquet hall with, with lots of other people. And so as we know, Napoleon was a light eater and a fast eater. He would usually finish his dinner in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes max. And then he would spend the duration of his dinner period engaged in important conversations with people who were there. After dinner, he would sometimes take a stroll or spend a night at the opera. But more often, he spent time back in his office dictating more letters or in more meetings. 
if he didn't have anything else to do, he was always writing letters. I think I mentioned this at the beginning, but he was essentially an email addict. If he were alive today, he for sure would have used Superhuman. I don't know if you guys know what Superhuman is, but it's this app that all these executives use because it helps increase the efficiency with which you can answer emails. So sales guys, CEOs, these people who are just crushing hundreds of emails per day, um, they, they use this app. That, that's the kind of person that Napoleon was, right? He's very efficient in how he dictated his letters because we know of at least 40,000 letters um, that he wrote in his lifetime. And those are just the ones that we know about and have been published in the Napoleon papers, but he probably wrote many more. So tens of thousands of letters that he wrote over his lifetime. And that goes back to this Napoleon optimization thing. He's thinking and deciding. And so he needs to write so much to see that his decisions are carried out and get more information in order to make more effective decisions. So um, after you know doing a little bit more work, like I said, he would generally go to bed by 10 p.m., a little bit between 9.30 and 10, he would, he would retire to bed. So that's his schedule. Uh, let's talk about a few other little things that I picked up about his work habits from this book. One thing that I found really interesting is that he designed his own desk and it was roughly in the shape of a violin or like a sideways eight. So it was skinny in the middle and then had two round circles on either side. And this was so that he would have plenty of room to stack papers on the sides, but so that the desk would be skinny enough at the center that he could sit across from visitors and meet with them and speak with them comfortably. And I found that really interesting that he designed his own desk that way. It seems like a really efficient de desk design. I don't know why I never see anything like that anymore. In meetings, uh, Baron Fane describes him as very inquisitive. He says that he loved nothing so much as to hear an expert wax eloquent on the thing that they were expert in. His mode of conversation uh, was very similar to the way that he went to war. He was always on the offensive, always seizing the initiative, but that didn't mean he spoke a lot. He actually listened uh, mostly. He was a very good listener and he would pepper his subjects with a quick succession of short questions um, to keep them kind of talking about what he wanted to hear and what he wanted to learn about. When conducting meetings, the tone that he tried to create was, quote, what it should be to stimulate the mind without arousing undue passion. In other words, he wanted the meeting to be interesting and, uh, you know, uh, he kind of wanted you to go, huh, you know, be thinking uh, during these meetings, but not emotional, not passionate. And I think that's a good target to shoot for. Fane says that Napoleon loved rules, but hated routine. And in one sense, the one could substitute for the other. So he was able to change up his routine and flexibly respond to changing circumstances because he had very consistent rules for how things should be done. So people weren't thrown into confusion when things changed up a little bit. They just knew that if A, then B. I try to remember that. Consistent rules, but a flexible schedule. And, you know, this seems like a very, maybe heavy, um, team and process, right? He, he literally, he did have dozens of valets and secretaries and transcribers and um, interpreters and guards and all these things, right? But he was able to take this on the road very easily, uh, albeit with a very much reduced staff, so that when he was at war, he was able to maintain much of the same working style and process. Napoleon, uh, I found this interesting, was apparently schoolboy-like in his love of being outside. So as soon as the first buds of spring appeared, he would throw open the windows and begin walking on the lawn as much as possible during his workday. And 
that's something I have always loved. I love working outdoors whenever possible. And I think it does improve your work. Uh, it clears your mind. Nietzsche said to never trust a thought that occurs to you indoors. And I think Napoleon might have agreed with that. He loved to do his best thinking outside whenever possible and when walking whenever possible. One other thing that I found interesting is that Napoleon was obsessed with protecting his downside, uh, with ensuring against catastrophic failure. Baron Fane said that, quote, going into battle, the emperor was little concerned with what he would do in case of success, but much with what he would have to do in case of failure. No one around him imagined it, but he had this habitual preoccupation. So this is interesting. People generally think of Napoleon as bold, as a risk taker, but he was actually obsessed with failure and with what he would do in case of failure. And so that seems like a contradiction, but it's actually a common thing amongst bold risk takers. Uh, Richard Branson, the famously brash billionaire and entrepreneur wrote, quote, it is only by being bold that you get anywhere. But if you are a risk taker, then the art is to protect the downside. So it's interesting to see that reflected in the career of Napoleon, as well as in modern entrepreneurs, that being obsessed with protecting the downside allows these people to be bold and to be risk takers because they know that if the risk doesn't pay off, they still have other options. They know what they're going to do uh, in case things fail. So um, if you do want to be bold, then make sure you got insurance. Make sure you know what you're going to do if things don't pan out the way that you hope that they do. Okay, rapid fire. A few other small observations uh, about Napoleon's work habits. He drank coffee and took a pinch of snuff, tobacco, but was not excessive in either. He took naps, especially in the summer. He slept seven to eight hours a day, but spread it throughout the day. Like I said earlier, he would usually have a period of night that he would wake up and work and then sleep again in the late morning. And then during the summer, he would sleep in the midday, sometimes for an hour. He liked seeing things completed. So rather, you know, if he was doing a, a public works construction, rather than working on a 100 mile road for 10 years, he wanted to see 10 mile portions of that road completed each year, uh, if that makes sense. So um, if he was building a fortification, rather than working on an entire fortification for three years, in the first year, he wanted a ditch dug and wanted it completed. In the second year, he wanted a wall built and have it completed in the second year. And then in the third year, you know, guard houses built and supplies gathered so that the whole thing was completed after the third year, but something was completed each year. So he really liked that, breaking things up into smaller tasks and completing them. And um, that's it. That's basically all my notes. The thing that really stuck with me is just how obsessed with efficiency he was in maximizing what he was best at, thinking and deciding and building this machine, this operation around him to keep him working at his optimal state at all times. And I mean at all times, from the moment he woke up to the moment he fell asleep. One thing I incorporated after this was an idea I had when reading about how much he dictated letters rather than writing them himself. I usually take notes in my books and highlight portions as I go. And then I go back and review those notes and highlights as I write my scripts. Well, as many of you are aware, that's a pretty slow process. And I've been pretty slow about producing and writing and creating new episodes for how to take over the world. And so what I've done is I've, for this episode, what I did instead is I just have my phone out or my computer and I record a voice memo as I read. And whenever I have a thought about what I'm reading, oh, look, Napoleon did this. I just say it out loud. 
And then if there's any interesting portions that I think would be good quotes that I want to include in the episode, I read those out loud. And then at the end, I upload that voice recording to Descript, which is a really cool piece of software that will transcribe audio for you. Then I have Descript eliminate any silences of more than three seconds so that, you know, five hours of voice memo audio becomes 20 minutes of voice memo audio, just a few sheets of paper. And those few sheets of paper will have all the most important quotes from my reading and my most important thoughts and takeaways from it. So I did that for this episode. It really worked. It was much more efficient. And I'm planning to put some more human help around me as well to try and make me even more like uh, Napoleon, uh, even more efficient uh, and have even more of a machine. So anyway, hopefully that will give you some ideas of how you can incorporate some of this stuff into your own life. Uh, Hopefully you can be an efficiency machine like Napoleon was. One last note. Uh, One thing I loved is there is this chapter where Baron Fane, the writer of this book, talks about all the famous secretaries throughout history. So he actually starts with Alexander the Great. It's very relevant to me. I just completed this episode. Uh, I just completed a series on Alexander the Great. And he talks about Alexander the Great's private secretary. And he recounts all the famous secretaries in world history, especially European and French history. And um, he tells what he thinks from them, what he learns from them. And you can just tell that Baron Fane is this guy who is obsessed with being a secretary and obsessed with being a good secretary. And so it just gave me this idea that, you know, you're you're reading this and it's great that Napoleon can be this machine of efficiency, but you start to think, but can really everyone do this? Um, Not really, right? Because some of the people have to be the machine, have to be the resources around him. But it helped me realize that, you know, you're trying to optimize for the thing that you're best at. And so for Baron Fane, the thing that he was best at was being the secretary. Um, And so he kind of optimized for that, optimized for his ability to transcribe for Napoleon, to edit his letters, to read and report and synthesize in the same way that Napoleon was optimizing for thinking and deciding. So even if what you're trying to do is not Napoleon-like, if you're not trying to be a leader, you're not trying to be the emperor, you're not trying to be the head honcho, that's okay. I think you can still find lessons to pull from all of this so that you can optimize around whatever it is that you are trying to do. Uh, Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Until next time, thanks for listening to How to Take Over the World. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.